a full hour as promised with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, who joins me on the line. Thank you so much for doing this, making yourself available during this incredibly busy time. I appreciate it. We've been building to this full hour, uh, Jody. We, we ended up doing 45 last week because I ran overtime on the, on the briefing. So it's good to be back. Good, and it'll be good to hear from your listeners. This is the best thing is that when people say that they want access to you is that this is actually your idea. You said it on the air and you, you kept track of it last time that it was only 45 and we do have an hour here. So let's open up the phone lines. 604 280 9898 star 9898 is a free call on your cell. We're doing it for the entire hour until 10 o'clock. 604 280 star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And as, as Tim French gets things sorted in terms of people lining up on the phone board, I, I do have a number of, of questions that came at me via social media through my email, Jody at cknw.com. I got one this morning, uh, Minister, from Rose, and she says, Hi, Jody. Please ask Minister Dix when we can expect the start of distribution of rapid tests. We have a grandson in our house. His dad has definitely been exposed to COVID. Both are sick. We're pretty sure they both have it. We can't get an appointment until next week. We And we were lucky to get that as everything is booked so solid. Also, my 80-year-old husband felt ill yesterday. If we had the tests, we could do it at home, find out sooner. And also... That would be far better than waiting in a long line while feeling sick. I bet a lot of people just don't bother to get tested due to this situation. Rose from Ladner. What do we say to Rose? Well, uh, hi, Rose. And I'm sorry your family's going through all of this because it's very difficult. It's very difficult for multi-generational families as well. So uh, with respect to rapid tests, I'd say, first of all, for your in your case, if you have symptoms of COVID-19, it's best to assume you have COVID-19 right now and to take all the steps you need to take, uh, both to stay well yourself and to isolate yourself from others. And that's, uh, you have to, you have to, in a time when we're seeing um, through our last week, hundred, in the hundreds of thousands of PCR tests, uh, test positivity of 25%, you've got to assume under those circumstances that you have it. The test can confirm that, but you've got to assume that you, that you have COVID-19. I think, I think with respect to rapid tests, uh, the federal government announced this week that they had, uh, were buying 140 million rapid tests. That doesn't mean they're here. Um, we have understand from the federal government that not hundreds of millions, but hundreds of thousands more rapid tests will come next week. So how are we using those? They're all, uh, all of our rapid tests are allocated uh, now. And those will be allocated and we'll build out more access. But until they arrive, like 500,000 rapid tests we're using in long-term care, we're using support education efforts, we're using it test sample collection sites to support those efforts for healthcare workers, for Indigenous communities, for businesses in congregate living circumstances. So 500,000 rapid tests that they're sending us next week that we're, that we're going to have and we've got a date for, that's one for every 10 people in BC. So that's not a broad distribution system. So once the rapid tests start arriving, they'll be distributed more broadly. But all of the rapid tests we have are, uh, are fully allocated now. Um, some are limited because they require a healthcare worker to deliver them. So it's going to be a little while before um, what uh, Rose is talking about will be in place. So I think right now the word, the watchword is caution in all we do and uh, to take the steps we need to do to keep ourselves safe to the extent we can and to understand that some of us are going to get sick even if we do those things. And uh, they just reduce our risk. And so, and to assume right now 
that uh, we need to self-isolate when we get sick. Right. And that test case positivity that you mentioned, 25%, if you have symptoms, the odds that it is COVID-19 are very high. Are very high. And remember, this is comparative, right? Like, of course, you know, we do symptomatic testing. So that's 25% of the subset of people who are getting tested. Tested. Right? Yeah. But, yeah. but um, so, and that's what we've always reported. But just to put that in context, probably around December 1st, uh, Jody, it was about 3%. So that just province-wide. It was higher in some places than others. And now one of the other differences is that no matter where you live in the province, it's pretty close to 25%. So we went through a whole period in August, September, October, November, where um, it was this was hugely a pandemic in the Northern Health Authority and to an extent the Interior Health Authority. And now you're seeing those test positivity rates everywhere. And that means that the risk is in every community and that we all have to use the control that we do have uh, to, um, to protect ourselves and reduce our risk as much as possible. All right, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is the number to call if you have a question for BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. We begin with Peter in Delta. Welcome, Peter. Uh, thank you for taking my call, Jody. Sounds like you're going to have another great show today. Um, my question is uh, for, the, for the minister uh, regarding the ambulance service. After the heat dome, we, we, sorry, prior to the heat dome, we saw these uh, people pass away, almost 500, and the minister announced a huge committee with Jim Chu and stuff. And I just wanted to see where we're at with our ambulance service. It still seems like we're not really getting anywhere, uh, even with dispatching or the, you know, the, the cars on the road. We had that gentleman that waited six hours for an ambulance the other day, and it's kind of scary when everything is happening. And it, COVID hasn't even hit us hard yet, and you know, uh, we're already down so many ambulances. So um, it's an excellent question. Thank you, Peter. Um, we've uh, announced at that time, and indeed before that, we were going to add more ambulance paramedics, and we have. All of the ones we announced have been hired, and uh, both ambulance paramedics and, importantly, dispatchers. In addition, we've increased uh, service around uh, rural and remote communities in B.C., working with the ambulance paramedics of B.C. very closely. So uh, many communities, 24 in fact, are getting what's uh, 24-7 service, which is a really significant upgrade in service in rural areas where it's a very different situation than it is for those of us who live in Vancouver where we call an ambulance, we want it right away. In rural areas, it's very important to have uh, that access, but often the time to, to the patient is a lot longer. And so we've added paramedics, we've added cars, we've added dispatchers, we've uh, streamlined the organization. All the things we said we were going to do, all of them have been done. And um, Jim Chu is the chair of the BC Emergency Health Services now. He's doing an excellent job. He has, of course, not just a great reputation, but a real community service. So he, this is community service on Jim's part that he's doing and helping us with this. We have a chief ambulance officer named Leanne Heppel who's driving this every day. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be challenges on a daily basis. It does mean that a lot of people are getting uh, excellent service. What's changed, Peter, in the ambulance service in the last two years is not just the number of calls. There are more calls, significantly more, but there are more what are called purple and red calls. Those are the most serious calls where people's life is in immediate danger. And those numbers have gone up very significantly. And the only way to respond to that, and it's not systems responses, it's not telling people to call 811 or going to an urgent primary care center. For those calls, you need more ambulance paramedics. And we're hiring more and we've hired more. 
Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. He is back on Monday. We're with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, who's given us an hour of his time, a full hour of phones, open phones for you to ask your questions. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. We will be doing this all the way to 10 o'clock, just so you're aware. If you're hanging on the phone line and you don't uh, get to ask your question leading up to the news to the bottom of the hour, stay with us. We'll come as in order received because the phone lines are lit up. No surprise for Health Minister Adrian Dix. So let's get to it. John in Surrey. Welcome, John. Uh, hi, Jody and Mr. Dix. Uh, great show, by the way. And um, I just want to comment on something and ask a question, Mr. Dix. I want to comment on the um, the f- issue of families visiting in care facilities. Um, I know that it was announced recently that um, each resident will now be allowed to have a designated one designated family visitor, which is great. Prior to that, I know the restrictions were just to essential visitors, and and I think that's where a lot of the problem and the blur was. A lot of the public get confused between essential and designated, and my understanding is essential would be if a resident was near end of life, palliative, actively dying, or if there was perhaps an emotional crisis in some unique situation that warranted families could visit, they could be an essential visitor. The ethical and moral distress with that is each facility and staff, you know, are having to tell families that, you know, your family member is, is not a much distress or dying, so you can't come and visit, but your roommate's family can come and visit. So can you imagine just how you articulate, how one's to articulate that to the resident and to the families? So will that be avoided this point on in the future and each person will be allowed a one designated family? Because the the distressed families and residents have with that muddy, distressed water is really upsetting. Could you comment on that, um, please? Because I know if Jody was told she couldn't see her father, but his roommate or next patient next door could, you see where I'm going with this. I'll hang up and listen, sir. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, John, what what a great question. I, I want you to know that my family is in this circumstance as well. So we're sort of living this, as I know Jody's family has and and others. So I understand what you're saying. An essential visitor is essentially a visitor who plays a role in the actual care, which frequently happens, of the resident in long-term care. So there are about um, 7,000 essential visitors. They were also designated for early vaccination, dose one and dose two, and now dose three, right? And so they play that role. But... You know, we get confused, I think, about the term essential. Visiting people in long-term care is essential even if you're not involved directly in the care because the social aspect is so important. These are, after all, people's homes. They're not hospitals, although they may be qualified as that. They're, uh, they're, they're people's homes. They're where people live. So um, social visits are really important. So up, up, there was a whole period during the first waves of the pandemic when we didn't have visitation in long-term care, social visitation in long-term care. And it was very hard, and it was months and months and months and months. That's not what we're seeing now. Last Friday, Dr. Henrietta of Caution um, uh, restricted social visits in long-term care and said no to those right now. Why did she do that? Because we're seeing, we've seen, gone from zero outbreaks. Just before Christmas, we were down to no outbreaks in long-term care. With the Omicron variant of concern, we're now, you know, getting close to 20 to 30 outbreaks. And when an outbreak happens, why you want to present it, when an outbreak happens, it doesn't just affect visitation, which can't happen. 
except for essential visitors. But it also affects all the other activities in the care home. And I can tell you this from personal experience because my family member has been involved in multiple outbreaks uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. So we need to take this step both to deal with transmission questions, which are really important, and also to ensure that we were adequately staffed and could provide the support for people in long-term care. What Dr. Henry spoke about on Tuesday, we're going to work towards in the next uh, short period, is to ensure that every resident is a designated, one designated social visitor. So we don't have as many people in the care home like we did before Christmas, before this change happened, but we, uh, but we ensure that every, every uh, resident has a visitor. One of the great challenges in long-term care, I'll say this, for many residents, is that even though these resident restrictions are in place, if you look at the Seniors Advocates report, but half of residents don't get visitors at all uh, under most circumstances. So it's a very challenging time in long-term care. It's particularly challenging when there are outbreaks. So what we're trying to do is balance off the need to keep people protected in this very intense period we're going through in January with Omicron. We want to get back to regular visitation, which means vaccine card and so on soon. And we're going to be adding to this uh, rapid testing for all visitors. So visitors will have to be vaccinated. They'll have to be rapid tested before they go in. Once those are in place, we're trying to ensure that everyone has a designated visitor. I know that a designated social visitor. I know that the sense of unfairness is there. But I, I think what we're trying to, what the essential visitors do is they play an important role in the care of people. And so interrupting that would be um, not, not positive for the health. What we want to try and do is expand and ensure that all uh, residents of long-term care who get visitors can have, the, can have a single visitor right now so that we can both try and keep people safe and try and give them the social concern they have. I'm sorry that's a long answer, Jody, but it's a really serious question for those in your audience who are uh, who are who have family members in long-term care. There's no question, and it, there's no doubt that that required uh, that sizable answer because it is as complex as it is. And I think it's an important takeaway, and I do see the phone boards are stacked, and we're going to get to our news to 9.30, so hang on the line if you can. If you can't, be mindful that you can call our buzz line at any time, 604-331-BUZZ, and leave a message there as well. But just before we go to the news, I think it's important of of that answer you just get uh, gave us, Minister Dix, is the the last time we had restrictions on long-term care, it was so open-ended that we all felt it was months and months and months before we had access in a meaningful way to our loved ones in their homes. And here there is a, a, a definitive, you know, January 18th, we will revisit that. Uh, that gives hope, yes. It does, as does, uh, and we're, what we're working towards is to ensure that every resident, even if restrictions remain on general visitation, which I think a lot of family members also are concerned about, they want to make sure their, uh, their loved ones are as protected as possible, that we're going to move, one, to ensure that everyone has a social visitor in this period, yeah. and two, that we're going to revisit those things because we don't want to go months and months again. We can't go months and months and months we again uh, the with, with visitation restricted because even, yeah. even, even the restriction to one visitor is very challenging for people. Like, you know, um, all of us in our lives uh, want to maintain regular patterns. And if we're regularly visited by two or three people, that interruption can be very harmful to our health as well. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. He is back on Monday. We're continuing our full hour of open phones with Health Minister Adrian Dix. Our BC Health Minister is with us to the top of the hour now, taking your phone calls to 604 280 
9898-604-280-9898 or star 9898, a free call on your cell. Also, if you're a bit shy, coming on the radio can be a bit scary for some, but you might have questions anyway. You can email me, jody at cknw.com. That's jody with a Y at cknw.com. You ready to go, Minister? Ready to go. All right, let's connect with Mike in Langley, who has been exceptionally patient. Welcome to the show, Mike. Yes, good morning. Um, Minister Dix, um, I've been a paramedic for 20 plus years in the lower mainland. And, you know, I just want to thank you. You've always been an advocate for the paramedics in British Columbia. And I think the changes that you've done over the summer for rural BC outside of the lower mainland are, are quite remarkable. Um, with with all of those changes but unfortunately the this is not anything that's going to help us here in the lower mainland in the coastal and the fraser uh, health region all of those positions that you've created up north are 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 being filled by full-time paramedics down here in the lower mainland that are accepting all of those positions out there so there's this mass exodus right now of of full-timers in Fraser and Coastal, and I mean, with all due respect, I think you're going to probably tell me, going to tell me that you know we're hiring more full-time paramedics, but what we're not doing is we're not creating new ambulance positions. You know, since the summer, there's been one added in Langley, one added in Surrey, one in Richmond, and that's it in my area. So how does three ambulances, three new rotations? help this problem that we have it, it doesn't address it i mean you know it it, it it it's not we need more ambulances not we need more paramedics to work those ambulances but we need more ambulances more shift patterns and it, i i just i mean we're we're running so short now i'm 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 just not sure how we're going to get through the next couple of months um with what's going on so i just would like you to comment on that like what's in what's going to happen in the lower mainland to address these shortages yeah thanks mike and yes it's true that when you address one problem sometimes it leads to other challenges you know and uh, we needed to address the rural and remote problem everybody knows it and certainly members of your union knows it and all the ambulance paramedics i talk to uh, know that in addition we're buying more ambulances uh, and some of them are purchased, some, some are on the road, some are going to be on the road soon, and those require ambulance paramedics to staff them. We need to train more people as well, because even though we have an urgent problem now, that problem is going to be there, Mike, in five years and seven years and eight years if we don't do more work in training. So more ambulance paramedics, you're saying not enough yet, and I hear you. Uh, more uh, ambulances. Uh, there are more, and there are more coming on the road, and those are principally in the lower mainland. Other is like Kelowna and Victoria, but principally in the lower mainland or Metro Vancouver. And so I, I think you're right. I think what we've seen and what's unusual is the increase in the most severe calls, and that puts a lot of strain on ambulance paramedics. And the final thing I'd say is, and Mike knows this from his experience, I know, is that everywhere in BC, ambulance paramedics have had to deal with not the, just the COVID-19 public health emergency, but they're very much on the front line of the overdose public health emergency. And so qualitatively, it makes the work very challenging. And so one of the things we are doing is working with our ambulance paramedics both to, to put in stronger support services for them 
as they deal with what a job that has qualitatively changed. It's not just stressful. There's not much, just more hard calls. But uh, with two public health emergencies, the strain on ambulance paramedics have been high, and I'm very proud of our team of paramedics, and we're working very hard to ensure that they have the support they need to do their, their important work. So thank you, Mike, for calling, and thank you for your question. And short staffing is an issue. Um, Minister Dix, uh, if I may just slide in a piece of audio here, Tim, if you could bring that up. Um, Bianca Rego, our producer, uh, booked a guest for Mornings with Simi today. M- Morgan is her name, uh, a nurse speaking to uh, the difficulties on the front line and, and speaking about the abuses. And we'll get into that as well, people being... Um, just out of line with healthcare workers in, in in a remarkable way. But Morgan really did reference how there is a shortage uh, when it comes to nurses as well. Can we play that clip? Um, healthcare is underfunded, understaffed. It doesn't have enough resources for us to be able to do our job. And I'm thinking back to at least my experiences, the majority of violence that I have experienced could have been avoided with safe staffing levels. If there had been an extra three nurses on the unit, which is supposed to be our kind of baseline of staff, maybe this person wouldn't have escalated to the point where they were violent with me. Obviously, very unusual times, unprecedented indeed, times that we're in right now. But with what Morgan just said there, Minister Dix, when it comes to staffing shortages, whether it be ambulance and paramedics or nurses or physicians, the concerns about absenteeism moving forward and how we're going to manage this with the escalating public frustration and anxiety, uh, what's the plan there? Well, first of all, I think the public has been really good for the most part, and our healthcare teams have been fantastic in difficult times. We've been going through this since basically uh, January of 2020, and uh, this public health emergency of COVID-19 and concurrent public health emergency of the overdose crisis. And that has led to challenges and increase in demand, not just for COVID services, right, or for health services or respiratory illness services, but you know, the struggle, and it has been a struggle for lots of people, has put pressure on acute care, mental health, and everything else. We have had put in place, in fact, BC has led Canada uh, in since I became Minister of Health in hiring new nurses. But that doesn't mean, you know, just because we're ahead of Ontario and Quebec and New Brunswick doesn't mean the situation um, that your caller this morning was talking about is any easier on the ground. I don't think when nurses are feeling uh, pressured or working hard or working overtime, they're thinking very much about nurses in New Brunswick at that point, right? So um, we're doing uh, enormous work in recruiting. We're adding spaces. We're adding spaces in rural communities, for example, and uh, training opportunities in rural communities, a new nursing program in Fort St. John. So we're doing all these things. And, but, you know, the demand on nurses and the value of their work has never been higher. It's fundamental to the supports we want to provide in the community for people who uh, need uh, more than a little bit of support to uh, operate in the community. We need it in acute care. We need it in community health. And nurses have not just uh, a lot of pressures, but lots of options. So we have to ensure that we're retaining our nurses as well. And so we have to address these issues, and we are. On the violence question, 
there there is is an element and there always would be an element of staffing to that question but i would also say that we need to take continue to take some steps to uh, ensure that uh, our nurses are safe as any employer should and must and that just doesn't mean nurses but healthcare workers and health sciences professionals and everyone so we need to do that and i think the public is very supportive of that, and we need to ensure that, that uh, we have the highest quality of, of um, support and protection for nurses, and when events occur, the most, poss- most support that we can provide. You can't get rid of all of them, but as, uh, your, as the caller who spoke to Simi Sarah or on the show this morning said, there are ones that can be reduced through the steps we take, and we need to take those steps as well. All right, Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, and we are on rapid-fire mode here as we have another 10 minutes with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix and your calls uh, to our phone board as well as some emails. But I want to get to the calls because, boy, you guys have been super patient. Not one person has dropped off here. People very motivated to bend your ear, Minister Dix. Let's start with Kathy in Abbotsford. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Minister Dix and Jody. Um, my my concern is I'm one of those people who really re- have a high regard for my natural immune system, and it's protected me for years. Um, I'm just wondering, we've been in this for two years now, I'm just wondering if there's been any research into early treatment and prophylactics and that kind of thing. Well, what I can tell you is that there are uh, antiviral treatments that are currently before Health Canada that may help people uh, once they get sick. But what we do have, of course, are vaccines, and uh, and they make an enormous difference for people. Yesterday, the vast majority of people in critical care were amongst the 8% of people who are unvaccinated in BC. So they represented the majority of the people. And they're, they're, and only, they're only about one in 12 in society. So what we really need to do, I think, uh, Kathy, is every, anyone who hasn't had dose one or dose two, now is the time to get it if you haven't got it for all the reasons up to now. And those who are invited to get their booster shot to get their booster shot. But there are improvements in treatment and the antiviral treatments, which we hope will be approved by Health Canada soon, will help us once people get very ill and are in hospital. But uh, the, the key way to protect ourselves is still vaccination, still effective, still safe. And this is particularly true for children 5 to 11, 40% of whom now are, va- are vaccinated. But we want that number to be higher. And you have a town hall, actually. Keith Baldry was mentioning yesterday on Baldry's Beat. You have a town hall for Monday. Uh, to discuss more about that vaccination for the younger uh, kids and how there are more being booked than they are getting immunized and trying to sort of manage some of the fears surrounding that. So maybe that's a good opportunity for Kathy to tune in and learn more about the safety of these incredible vaccines that we have that are protecting so many people. Continuing down the phone board, let's go to Leah in Langley. Welcome, Leah. Hi there. How are you? Good. How are you? Great. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Mr. Dix, I'm a licensed practical nurse uh, in Fraser Health Authority. I've been a LPN for 15 years this year. I have a wide variety of expertise from community care, acute care, hospice care, emergency care. Why are we not fast-tracking care aids to an LPN program and LPNs to an RN program? We have the people in our healthcare system right now, who can alleviate some of this, this, um, this nursing shortage, this nursing crisis, and we're not utilizing that. LPNs, my friends, are going to Alberta and other provinces to get 
educated. We need to do something and we can utilize the people in our system. So why aren't we doing that? I, I agree um, with your point, which is that we need to upgrade people. We're doing that in the health science profession. We're doing it in nursing. and We need to do it more. In addition, we've got to fast track people with international credentials so that they can get to work here in BC. I think that's an important step that we can take that's important. But you're absolutely right. And uh, let me just say finally, thank you for the work you're doing. LPNs do an enormous amount of the work in the system. They're incredibly valuable. And uh, upgrading care aids to LPN is important. But I'd add, we also need more care aids. And we've added in long-term care. We said we'd add 7,000. We've added more than 6,000 mostly healthcare assistants, sometimes called care aids in long-term care, uh, through our system. And we've got to continue to do that. But you're absolutely right. We need to give people the the means to upgrade their skills. And uh, and, uh, obviously, that helps them with their careers, but it helps the healthcare system take care of people. So I totally agree with you. Millions of British Columbians are sending sending you gratitude, Leah. Thank you for all that you do. All of our frontline healthcare workers uh, can't even imagine the level of stress you deal with on a daily basis. Let's go to Steve in Kamloops. Welcome, Steve. Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Slightly off topic, and I know this isn't your ministry there, uh, Mr. Dix, is the BC wildfire uh, last summer, we saw uh, the waste of resources due to bureaucracy, uh, a fire ban that wasn't put on until the fifth day of the heat dome. Uh, we saw the uh, resources in the logging and the ranchers and the contractors not being used. There was a survey done this fall. Can you comment on what changes are coming or when we're going to hear some updates on the changes? Um, well, there's going to be a fundamental uh, change to emergency health services my colleague Mike Farmer is putting in place, and I'm sure uh, at some point he'll be uh, taking, the, taking the calls uh, now and be able to respond. I think, in general, our firefighting teams did an extraordinary job last summer. These are unprecedented wildfires, and so um, you're right, Steve. We have to upgrade to the circumstances of climate change and the circumstances that have hit our province in 2017 and 2018 and this year and be prepared for it. I can speak to it from the healthcare system perspective. You know, when you think of people in long-term care and merit, they had to uh, move because of uh, wildfires. They had to move because of floods in that community. And you can imagine the impact that had on them. So yes, we got to continue to improve our response because wildfires aren't going away. And we're seeing more now because of climate change and other circumstances. And so we have to continue to do that work. But I'm not sure I quite agree with your characterization of the work that was done. But of course, improvements can always be made. And you can bet every year that our teams who are dealing with wildfires are learning and improving and working on that question because they they deal with it on the front lines. We only have a minute here, so I want to squeeze this one question in um, about the convention center lineup that we saw going viral on social media. And I actually had a friend of mine who had an appointment booked for 2.45. She was checking in with me over the course of the the, uh, afternoon. It took her over two hours to get to her booster shot appointment. What happened there? 
First of all, the good news, uh, Jody. Try to start with some good news. Five thousand appointments took place at the convention center yesterday. Awesome. So our teams, our teams did an excellent job in getting people through. Quite a few people joined the line at the convention center without appointments, and that created some problems. And we got to communicate that message better. And we're we're launching and ramping up. So we went from zero to five thousand in a couple of days. And so you'll remember, I think uh, I'm trying to think of it was March or April, a similar line at the convention center, and it happened yeah. once or twice, then it didn't happen again. So I, I think that um, we're responding to that. I'm sorry to people that had to wait too long, and I thank them for getting their booster doses. I thank you for taking an hour out of your day to answer the questions and calls from our CKNW listeners. I appreciate that very much, Minister. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Jody, and thanks to all your listeners. And sorry we didn't get to more calls. I have a New Year's resolution to give shorter answers, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having a difficult early start there.